Hello, I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. Welcome to the 905er. This is our 25th episode. It's quite the milestone for us personally, as we didn't even know if we'd make it to this point. When we started this venture, we sat down with the idea that our communities were more than just an extension of Toronto. The 905 region had grown into its own unique part of Ontario, and with that, Canada as a whole. Yet our media hadn't reflected that point. In fact, our media over time has become more and more concentrated in the hands of a few corporations. Independent media, like the 905er, is the future of news in this province. We have been able to focus on stories that matter the most to you. Stories like the 5,000-strong Black Lives Matter march in Burlington, Hamilton City Council's mistreatment of Cameron Crutch, the ongoing dispute at 1492 Landback Lane in Caledonia, COVID-19 miscommunications from the province, the province's reneging on allowing municipalities to choose ranked ballots for their elections, the division of families in long-term care homes and group homes due to COVID-19 policies, the need for a universal basic income, and the innovation COVID-19 has forced small businesses and industries in the region to adopt to survive. We've covered all these stories and more so far, and there are so many more that we want to keep sharing with you, but we need money to do so. We have ambitions to grow this podcast into a meaningful and impactful news company for the region, but that requires capital to do so, and that is where you come in. Roland and I are asking for you to contribute only $5 per month to our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash the 905er. We encourage you to please contribute today so that we can keep bringing you the stories that matter most to the 905 region. Okay, and on that note, what's on tap for today, Roland? Well, I think we were, uh, we'll start off by just sort of referring back to our Tuesday episode and what we learned from Hassan and Janet about the province really attacking one of the, in some ways, one of the last bastions of independent local authority uh, that has real power over the development industry. And, and I, I, for myself, I have no doubt that that's the motivation for why they're making these changes. It's nothing to do with conservation or conservation authorities. It's all about getting, mm-hmm. getting what they call red tape, but the rest of us call safety health and safety <laughs> legislation uh, out of the way of development industry. And I guess the, the element that also came out of that, which, which ties into a whole lot of other things we've discussed in recent weeks, is the use of omnibus bills as a way to get really important legislation passed without anybody really noticing, uh, or, or certainly as an attempt in that regard, I think. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's 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 a shame that this is happening, because in this bill, 229, that has the Conservation Authority uh, power stripping legislation in it. There's also two other points or, or a piece of, le- of legislation that affect other stories that we've talked about in the past in this podcast. One is in the Bill 229, uh, there is legislation that helps protect the owners and operators of long-term care homes from possible legislation due to malfeasance or neglect or just anything, any matters that may arise to uh, COVID-19 issues uh, for their residents and allowing families to gain some kind of restitution for that. And the other is the ranked ballot question that that we addressed with Dave Meslin and Jesse Helmer and and Marianne Mead Ward uh, a few weeks ago. 
Um, I, I don't see how these help with the COVID-19 recovery or aid package in any shape, way, or form. And just to tack these onto it to that is disingenuous and, and cheating. Yeah. Now, to be nonpartisan for a second, I'd say that the PCs aren't the only party to have used omnibus bills to get a whole load of business done. However, I think they have certainly made it somewhat of an art form. Um, I mean, mentioning Dave Meslin in, in his book, he specifically talks about omnibus bills and, and how Stephen Harper used those in a way that had never been seen before. So um, when we talk about omnibus bills, it's usually the budget. Budget bills are confidence legislation, so it means it either passes or the government falls. Putting something into the budget is knowingly raising the stakes. You know, an opposition party has to consider the implications of whether they can bring down the government. Or in the case of a majority government like we have in um, Ontario right now, the budget bill is going to pass. Mm-hmm. This is end of story, really. Anything they put in there is going to get through uh, pretty much on the nod. Uh, well- the thing that comes down to it is that if these were all separate pieces of legislation that were being tabled in the province, sorry, in the, in the provincial legislature, because the, the Tories have a, a majority, they will pass. Like, let's not kid ourselves. They'll be pushed through, whipped through the vote, and they will pass. What the difference, though, is each piece of legislation will be able to be scrutinized by both the NDP, the Liberals, and the Green parties in the, in the legislature as well the public might get a little bit more attention to them. You might be able to start prying into what the ramifications of these pieces of legislation are. When they're tied into an omnibus bill, especially one titled the COVID-19 Aid and Recovery Act, you know, people understand when you say, well, no, I, I need that COVID-19 assistance. Like we need, we need a plan of attack to address the pandemic and understandably so. And I, I get people say that's the immediate priority. And that's kind of the duplicitous nature of this, uh, this omnibus bill is that you're basically tying it to people's livelihoods and sneaking it through so that people say, well, you know what, fine, I, I don't care about Conservation Halton's cripes with it. I need uh, I need some kind of money to keep my job in place or to keep my business afloat. Yeah, it's very, it's very shameful in my opinion. Well, I think it's something that we need to be aware of and we should be... Again, this is the kind of thing that the governments assume no one pays attention to. So if, if any kind of, if the media can pick up on this stuff and highlight it, it makes it much more difficult to get away with. Now, uh, I don't think we're quite at the stage yet where we're able to shame politicians into changing their behavior, but... Um, <laughs> but uh, well, who knows? Perhaps one day soon, you know. Well, but uh, it strikes me, what struck me is um, in our conversation with Hassan and Janet, was uh, Hassan's point that conservation Halton, and I'm going to extrapolate and assume that this goes for the majority of other conservation authorities in the province, that they're not roadblocks to development. And, and I do think that's what's being pitched here, is that these are you know bureaucratic, power-hungry entities, unaccountable to you and I, the taxpayer, and the Tories are finally putting an end to this rampant corruption. And that's not the case. Hassan's point of that, they rarely block development, but rather they just point out that, yeah, you're building on a floodplain. The area that you want to develop is highly susceptible to floods. You could be facing huge costs down the road. Why don't you build here instead? In fact, it's one of those things, like, if I was a developer, I just, why wouldn't I be going to the conservation hall to begin with and say, hey, where's a good spot to uh, build my next project? Just so that you can, when you go to the public, say, no, no, we've got it. We're covered. It's, it's ecologically sound. It, you know, it's a safe investment. We can build. We can make it work. And I find that's that counter story to be very enlightening. Yeah. And if you're not going to have something like a conservation authority stepping in with those kinds of powers, then you should, at the very least, 
make people make the builders liable for what they're creating. Um, I know before I came to Canada um, in the UK, building on floodplains was something that went on for decades on end uh, with climate change and even more rain happening in Britain than traditionally happens. Flooding became a huge problem with, with houses basically becoming uninsurable because they were flooded repeatedly year after year after year. And uh, From a developer's point of view, what does a floodplain offer? Well, it's nice and flat. (laughs) Floodplains are flat. You don't have to build up the side of a hill or anything like that. But, you know, they're really, particularly in an era of climate change, where the weather is changing and becoming more extreme, uh, they're really no-go areas. Um, So it's much better to have a regulatory authority that says up front, this is a bad idea, you shouldn't be building here, than to let people move into a house, find themselves flooded out five times in five years, end up with a house that they can't even sell because it, it right. can't be insured. You know, when you say I'm selling my house cause it floods regularly. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to buy that? Yeah. I actually had a good friend who had exactly that problem. And this was back in, uh, it would have been sort of late nineties, basically the house that was just flooded and flooded, uh, and was looking at, well, you know, every time this happens, it becomes less sellable, uh, at the same time as it becomes less of a place I want to live in. And I think Hassan mentioned that uh, other provinces have the same problem uh, that I have experienced of in the UK. And I think he mentioned Quebec in particular. So Ontario's done the right thing in having these conservation authorities with with reasonable but relatively strong power. So I think I mentioned that the stable top of bank issue just happens to be one I'm familiar with. Those decisions, uh, those rules, were very much not up for negotiation. Um, so the developers would knowingly, they'd know that they couldn't build within distance X of the top of bank next to Lake Ontario. Therefore, they didn't even try to. If you now make that a matter of negotiation, well, of course, they're going to try to build on any piece of land that they can access. I mean, it comes down to the, the Tory speaking point to this is uh, it provides more accountability to you and I, the taxpayer, except you and I don't have time to go and critique every building proposal brought forward in our backyards. You know, there is a pandemic going on. We all have other priorities. You know, you either have kids in school or you have your own business that you're trying to operate and you're trying to figure out how do I, how do I make that a go getting uh, a success and, and whatnot. And yeah, you don't have time to sit down and say, oh, you know, at the, pl- the initial planning phase when a developer brings forward a plan to city council for approval, yes, I'm going to take the time out of my very hectic and busy life to go down and organize with other strangers that I've never met and have nothing in common with other than this, than this one issue. And I'm going to divert all my resources and energy into why they should not be building there because it's a floodplain. It's a ridiculous proposal I mean, it sounds good. Oh, accountability, accountability. But let's be honest here. Like the idea is that they know developers won't get a strong opposition. People just won't have time to do it. People won't have time to organize and really drum up the support. People will know, yeah, you should be building there. But I got other things on my plate right now that I have to focus on. And that's why we have these conservation authorities. So we don't have to sit there and fight with developers every proposal that's brought forward to city council and every year. Da, 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 da. That's why they're there. And as it works right now, development is a matter of whoever has the deepest pockets. And the people with the deepest pockets are, are the developers. 
This isn't an anti-developer statement. We need housing in this province. Oh, um, absolutely. Uh, the population is growing. We need to put people in decent housing, we need affordable housing, we need all these things. And we're not communists. We don't think it should be built by, you know, a workers' collective necessarily. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But, but uh, <laughs> you, you and I have had this discussion many times offline about we're in the 21st century. COVID-19 has shown that a lot of our urban planning leaves a lot to be desired. Let's say that. And there's a lot of talk of, well, let's let's start using our imagination to come up with really good alternatives. I think you and I have both said that what we need is to bring a lot of more people to the table. It shouldn't just be city council versus developers. It should be neighborhood groups. It should be conservation authorities. It should be the land developers, the construction companies, the city council, and, and all these people brought to the table and say, well, what do we want our cities and our communities and our land to look like? And it can't just be a matter of, well, I got to build a new housing development. I got to build a new condo tower. It, yes, we need places to live, but how do we make it livable? How do we make it a place that people say, yes, I want to live here, not just, well, I got it because I got to put my, my stuff somewhere. It seems to me that the issue of development and the amount of angst and unhappiness that often causes, it exemplifies the, the problems we have, not just in Ontario, but across the Western world, really, with how our democracies work in a, what I think should be viewed as an old-fashioned and due-for-update kind of way that it's still very top-down, um, that the, you know, the, the promise is justifying these things in, in omnibus bills by saying, well, we held a consultation. What consultation? With who? Uh, for how long? Um, you're basically talking about a handful of people. Consultations are rarely very good, and under this government, they are uh, laughably small, because this isn't a, a government that is really interested at all in hearing anybody's opinion, other unless it confirms what they already think. And again, that's not necessarily a partisan issue. Many parties have suffered from that. I just think this one has that disease particularly badly. This idea of that we should all have a say in shaping our communities because the people who live here will do the best job of it. The regulations and the legislative framework that we have right in now is very good at building perfectly functional but not very interesting cities. Um, could Mississauga have been a better city than it is. I mean, millions of, well, I don't know, can't remember the population of Mississauga, but a lot of people <laughs> live there very happily uh, and go about their lives. You know, so it's a successful city. But could it have been better if we'd had different development rules in place, if we'd had uh, better ways of consultation? Could we have avoided the mistakes of designing a huge city that depends on um, cars? That's going to be really difficult to sort of reverse engineer. And the answer to all those things is yes. Uh, you know, I'm not having a go at Mississauga. This is a 905 problem like no other that uh, we have made really big mistakes in, in the designs of our cities that, that we could have avoided if we'd had a little bit of imagination. Um, well, and maybe we can do it now, but it's it's not getting any easier when, when we, we see legislative changes like these happening. But we're seeing spinoff effects uh, of just this kind of myopic view of development uh, in the region, and we we see it. It's a not a direct cause, but I think it is a tangential cause of another story that we covered, which was um, 1492 Landback Lane in Caledonia. Um, am I blaming developers? Kind of. There's a developer who decided to build a a housing structure right next door to where a previous dispute happened, and you wonder, geez, do you think another dispute might happen? I question their their logic on that one, but the idea of we need to build housing development 
and we have to go beyond you know green belt we can't restructure our existing communities to be more habitable more people friendly uh and that kind of thing it's just well the only thing we can do is just keep building houses out 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 well we that's when we run into issues like 1492 land back lane is we need to be we just need to keep building out okay but that land belongs to somebody else the need for development can't override the fact that it's land that belongs to somebody else and you need their permission to build on it that's kind of the status quo in the in the province that's where i you and i have been talking is just we need to rethink how our communities exist and what we want them to turn into not just well we just keep building more strip malls and more condo towers and more neighborhoods because that's all we know how to do it's actually a a process that was brought to my attention by uh fairly prominent politician who whose name i won't mention but uh and that is the issue of, of development kind of jumping over the green belt around hamilton particularly around burlington we've designed legislation quite rightly to try and discourage sprawl so what's happening is is rather than trying to build anywhere near the green belt with the difficulties that it has the developers are kind of jumping over it and going well it's the next place we can build instead which doesn't have these rules. Well, Caledonia is right next to the green belt on the other side. And what was a fairly rural place is now seen as if you want to build cheaply and quickly with a minimum of fuss, um, well, kind of ironic in Caledonia's case, but but basically if you, if you want to have the advantages that the old type of endless sprawl development had, that's where you need to go now. Um, and I think that's an issue that, that needs more attention because as far as I'm aware, it's, it's not something that's really been picked up by anybody. Um, one of the possible tragedies of the Caledonia situation is that the previous provincial government, I believe in just about the last few months uh, that it was in office, were considering uh, expanding the, the green belt quite dramatically, specifically to address flooding. It was all about protecting lands which, which would have an effect on flooding. Obviously, the government fell, but that would very likely have included the lands around Caledonia that are now at dispute, and that would have kind of solved two problems with one uh, one piece of legislation. But, you know, that's not going to happen under this government. It's very difficult to see any way in which they will ever take uh, a position that doesn't favour developers. And that's just wrong. And then, let's see, that comes back again to how the parties are funded because under the previous, uh, again, I'm really trying not to say, well, the previous government was wonderful and this one's terrible. They all have their faults. None of them are perfect. Let's just be completely clear about that. However, there was pressure brought by the Toronto Star under the previous government to do away with uh, corporate donations, and they did. One of the reasons in which that government probably fell, because they were finding it much harder to raise money than they did in the past, and uh, the PCs didn't have that problem. The first, One of the first things they did when they came back in was to to adjust the interpretation of they didn't change the legislation they just changed the interpretation of the legislation to let corporate donations back into the picture uh, to let ministers attend meetings where potential donors are present and i would say but there's no doubt whatsoever that pcs in terms of where their donations come from is overwhelmingly from things like developers, um, Matsumi Homes, uh, the, the, the people behind Ontario Proud. Mm-hmm. Well, that, I mean, that's I mean, we're, we're getting into a whole other thicket of the weeds there. I mean, it, yeah. and it, and it, and it's well, we know what happened with Ontario Proud in the last election 
how they got a huge influx of money from developers to help support their endeavors to, let's face it, install a progressive conservative government. They were very much anti-Kathleen Wynne and wanted to see the liberals turfed out of government, and they got what they wanted. And everybody wants to get all upset about, oh, but, you know, Madame Holmes and developers pay for that. And that's true. They did. However, the liberals and the NDP are equally guilty of getting external parties to donate to a third party venture. Like they, there are other entities, unions and, and whatnot that would donate to, you know, working families for Ontario and that kind of thing. And they would produce ads claiming that the Tories were bad. So that's kind of where we are in this province is that you get your deep pocket entities to contribute to a third party campaign of some form or another. And you see who comes out on top. Right now, that's the way it goes. I don't see how that's going to change in the next election. Um, I expect you'll see some other third-party group form, you know, know, COVID-19 survivors or whatever, something of that nature. And you'll see the teachers' unions, you'll see the nursing unions, the doctors' groups and whatnot contributing to those parties as well to overthrow Doug Ford. Doug Ford will get the developers and his interest to contribute to Ontario Proud or some other third-party venture and they'll have it out in the media um that that's how the game is played today in ontario politics until somebody drastically changes the rules and just finds a way to outlaw this stuff that's how the game is played yeah it's ironic that one of the another thing that the pcs immediately abolished when they came in was uh this happened federally as well that there was a kind of phasing in phasing out period that happened when when the legislation changed with regard to corporate donations and things like that whereby the parties were in effect given a subsidy to make up for the fact that they'd lost donations for other places and the conservatives of course said well it's terrible we shouldn't be subsidizing uh, parties the hypocrisy of that is that every donation that's given to a political party is subsidized up to uh, about three quarters because you get a tax credit that's a subsidy it has been for years conservatives are not getting rid of that because basically if you don't have that tax credit um you, you ain't getting donations <laughs> uh, and the donations from individual citizens like you and me generally you know you're very lucky to get more than fifty dollars a hundred dollars from a from a very generous donor as compared with the twelve hundred dollars you can get from uh corporate places i mean it, it the whole system is so flawed from top to bottom, basically because very few people are willing to give money to a political party anymore. Um, if you're going to give, the majority of people will give to you know the local animal shelter or cancer charity or an environmental group or whatever. What is the benefit of giving to a political party in the political world that we live in today? Well, the idea as someone who's given a lot to political parties over the years, I have to say that the benefits are pretty small. Well, uh, you and I know each other from our heyday working locally, politically, paying the political dues and whatnot. Just to be clear to everyone listening, I still am paying dues, but I don't go to any any political events at all. I, I haven't paid any fundraisers in years. But that being said, I mean, I get all the all the fundraising emails and whatnot still. But the structure is still very much geared towards we just want your money give us the money thank you very much sit down don't make a fuss and that like i don't know that's just that's the way it's always been i can't think of a, of a different time when you know because here's the thing 
you get the funder, you get the donors. Each party will go after the Madame Home CEOs or the Madame Home executive that lives in their riding or lives close to their riding. They'll go and talk to them to say, "Hey, come out to my fundraiser, my you know fifteen hundred dollar, twelve, whatever the maximum amount is these days. Come out to that fundraiser because I want, I, you know, I want that. And I guarantee you, if that person calls the consent office or the office in, in Toronto, Queens Park, that member, if they're elected, is going to be rushing back to call them back." Because just that bit, that check, the, the idea that I can ask for that check at some point in the next electoral cycle or next year is so much more important than, you know, mom, mom and pop having a concern about transit. That's, let's say you know, if you had an issue about transit and you wanted to talk to your local MPP about provincial funding to your municipality, they'll sit down, they'll listen to you. But the person that they're going to really make a point to call back and have a an half an hour discussion with, it's going to be the person who donates fifteen hundred dollars or twelve fifty, whatever the maximum is, uh, to their fundraiser. That's just the way it is. As we're saying, that's all completely legal and fair within the mm-hmm. system, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just human nature that that you you pay attention to the person who's writing the biggest check. It's not right. It's corrosive to our ways our democracy works, but it's probably difficult to take it out because I mean, like even so uh, 2018, when I ran in Burlington, all the donations are a matter of public record. There were no corporate donations in that election uh, to anybody, but some candidates were willing to accept donations from people who happened to be well-known developers, their personal donations out of their own pockets and the pockets often of their family members, but they're not corporate. Right. Yeah, of course they're not corporate. You know, again, I'm not accusing anybody of doing anything illegal or unfair or wrong. They were completely playing by the rules, but it's very, very difficult to take. It's actually kind of impossible to take corporate money out of the system, short of taking all money out of the system and saying we're just going to subsidise you guys 100 uh, percent based on like the number of votes you got at the previous election or something like that, uh, which is an option that that is used in some places. Um, uh, I don't know if that's good or bad. Or that system to bring it back, you know, one hundred eighty degrees, Roland. The issue that we have with the omnibus bill is, I think, is tied to that principle. Is that I brought it up in in our discussion with Hassan and Janet about the green belt, because if everybody remembers during the election a lifetime ago, it seems Doug Ford was caught in a literally a back room with developers talking about how he was going to tear up the greenbelt for them and allow them to start developing into the greenbelt. We all saw it. We saw the video and Ontario as a whole said, no, 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 no. We want the greenbelt. It is a good thing. Don't touch it. Get your hands off it. And Doug said, oh, I hear the will of the people and I obey the will of the people. The greenbelt is off the table. And we all said, okay, we took him at his face value. Within the first year, if I recall, uh, Doug Ford then does this kind of the government does this backhanded approach of oh well we'll allow the the municipalities to make the decision if they want to they thought okay that way the, the municipalities will start carving up and it takes the responsibility off of us only problem is all the municipalities said no we want the green belt I remember Marianne Mead Ward came out immediately I think that day or the day after said nope the Burlington section of the green belt we are not touching. It is going to stay intact as it is. And so, oh, that plan didn't work. So what is he doing? They're bringing in this, 
the Municipal Zoning Act to tear up in the, in the Pickering, the wetlands in the Pickering. They're changing the, the Conservation Authority to curb their, their ability to fight this. And it's just, it's clear, this government wants to allow developers to build in the Greenbelt. Why? That's their, who's writing their $1,250 checks. And I'll, I'll point yeah. out another catch on that that initial piece of uh, legislation, which was, I believe, was introduced in the fall of 2018. Every city that has the green belt in it said, "We're not going to use this this power." Fine, doesn't matter because that power is now appealable to the local planning uh, appeals tribunal. So that means that the city can say, "No, we're not going to let you build on our green belt," but the developer can say, "Well." Sure. Okay, I'll appeal it to the to LPAT and see what they say. Now, maybe the LPAT will say no way. But something that was previously just uh, non-negotiable is now negotiable again, and that's really what the LPAT is all about. It, it, it's taking things. It makes everything appealable and negotiable. When it's negotiable over time, you'll get a win. If you throw darts enough times at the wall, eventually one will stick. That's what they're counting on with these changes is that, yeah, you might lose a couple and the people might win, but over time, without changes to eliminate this this catch, eventually one or two will slip through. And that's what they're counting on. And then the precedence takes hold and it's easier to slip more and more through the through the to curve up the green belt. And what we're seeing in Burlington right now is that much as it was a council elected on a promise of controlling development, um, the practicalities of the matter, and this isn't a criticism of the council, practicalities of the matter are that once you get to LPAT, you have to do a deal. Uh, you have to compromise. You can't go in there and say, no, our way or the highway. The people who chair that tribunal are kind of looking for you to sort it out as quickly as possible and then get out of their hair. So that means if someone, if a developer appeals over a piece of greenbelt land, the city is going to say, well, we can spend a few million defending this. Um, and hiring expensive lawyers to try and, you know, go to the wall on this thing. Or we can say, well, you know what, you can, rather than 100 houses, you can build 50. Or rather than 100, you can build 80. Reduce the density a bit. Uh, Reduce the, well, in downtown places, reduce the height by a couple of floors. It's negotiation. The developer has got their way at that point. Um, it's, it's a broken system from top to bottom. It doesn't work for anybody. It doesn't work for developers either, I don't think. The only people who come out of this well are, are the lawyers because <laughs> they're getting paid. Well, you know what? Let's leave it at that for this week because as the mantra of this podcast, we could be going on for hours on this this topic and we'll come right back to where we are now. So I'm going to pull the plug on uh, this week's episode there and hopefully you hear from us next week. Thanks very much, everyone. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time.
This is Candace Sampson, the voice behind what she said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on blasttheradio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's blasttheradio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter.